Well, hey, we're in a series called We Are Sent, and we're looking at our mission statement. Uh, do you know our mission statement? How's it go? If you don't know it, you can read it off the screen. I'll make it easy for you. Right? See if, see if you can just pretend you have it memorized and just read it. Here we go. We are sent to love people and invite them to follow Jesus with us. That, that's our mission. If, you, if you're ever wondering, like, what am I supposed to do as a follower of Jesus, as a part of Wawasee Bible, there you have it. I'm sent to love people. We talked about that a few weeks ago. To love people, to put their interests, their needs, their, them first. Right? Jesus said that uh, is the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, but second only to that, or, or only second to that is, uh, second only to that, I said it right the first time, is to love your neighbor as yourself. And if you do those two things, love God, love people, you'll fulfill all of Jesus' commands. Well, then last week we looked at not only are we sent to love, and by the way, we have these little wristbands if you want one as a reminder. Every time I check my watch now, I see that as a good reminder that I'm sent to love. Uh, last week we talked about the fact that we're sent also then to invite people, to invite them to friendship a relationship, to invite them ultimately to church. Pastor Kirk mentioned these cards that we have available. Uh, and then ultimately to invite them to Jesus. Well, today, the rest of our mission statement, we're sent to love people and invite them to follow Jesus with us. Friends, if we're gonna invite people to follow Jesus with us, that with us is a really important part of our mission, right? Not us for no more, but more and more and more and more and more with us. We better be sure that we're actually following Jesus. So we're going to talk about what it looks like to follow Jesus today. Uh, so with that, let me pray, and then we'll dive in. Sound good? All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thanks for your grace to us through him. Uh, Jesus, thank you that uh, you saw fit to, uh, to love us and then to send us in the same way you were sent to live a life that uh, if we ever have any curiosity about what a spirit-filled life or a God-honoring life looks like, all we need to do is look to you and spend time with you. And that's what we'll see today. So Holy Spirit, I thank you that you might uh, use me. I thank you too for your word and your ministry to us today. I pray against the enemy as servants, their works and effects. Holy Spirit, would you change us and teach us and uh, cause us to live more in line with your word? We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Sent to follow. What does it mean to follow Jesus? Well, let's consider for a minute what this must have meant to the original disciples. Do you know, uh, Jesus was considered by them to be a rabbi. They called him rabbi or teacher. And when a rabbi would recruit people to follow them, it would, when he would invite someone to follow them, hey, follow me, it was an incredible invitation. There was so much wrapped up in that invitation because the idea was that uh, when you would follow a rabbi, the whole idea of following them for a while with your life was that you would become like them. So likely it was someone you admired, someone you looked up to. And their invitation to follow them meant that it was an invitation to really unlimited access to their life. You would be with them all the time. You would go where they would go. You would stay where they would stay. You would eat where they would eat. You would uh, develop some of the same passions that they had. You would learn from their teaching and you would become like them. And it was an incredible commitment to, to choose to follow someone. So when Jesus says, follow me, 
He's asking for a big commitment, but he's also making a big commitment himself to walk right alongside with you. So I want you to see a few things, and and these are going to kind of progress pretty quickly in terms of your outline, and then we're going to unpack a passage of Scripture together. But if I'm going to follow Jesus, the first thing I need to know is that following Jesus means that I should become like him, right? Because a disciple following their rabbi, they become like him. You go where he goes. You sleep where he sleeps. You become passionate about what Jesus is passionate about. You care for the outcasts and the lost, and uh, you preach the word. Even just by your life, by loving people, you're sent then to love people and invite them too to follow Jesus. See, truly following Jesus meant the disciples needed to structure their entire life around who he was and follow his example in every arena of life. And it's the same for you and I. And to follow him means spending we're going to see today a lot of time with him. In fact, if I was just going to clue you in as kind of the whole point of the message today, if you're going to follow Jesus as one of his disciples, as a follower of the rabbi, of the teacher, it's going to take a lot of time spent with him to become like him. Because like I I used to tell our students when I was a youth pastor, you become like the people you hang out with. Your, Your parents ever tell you that? Why are you hanging out with them? You're going to become like them. Well, if you're hanging out with Jesus, that's a good thing. The more time you spend with him, the more you become like him. Well, the Bible uses a word for this as we talk about being sent to follow and spend time with him. And it comes up especially in John and his writings. And if you look at John chapter 15 this morning, it's not going to be on the screen, so you may want to turn there in your Bible. The word of the day is abide. You want to say that with me? Abide. Go ahead, now you say it. Good work. You got it. That's the word of the day today. In John 15, the word that Jesus uses to describe spending time with him is abiding with him. What does it mean to abide? Because if you spend time with him, you're going to become like him, and so you're called to abide with him. Well, abide, it means remain. It means uh, to remain for a long time, to reside, to stay to be there for the long haul. And number two, then on your outline, to become like Jesus, we must abide and stay near to him. You're gonna become like the people you hang out with. If you want to follow Jesus and be his disciple and become like him, man, you gotta spend time with him. You have to abide with him, remain with him, reside with him, stay with him. You turn to John 15 yet? Let's start to unpack this passage. John chapter 15, starting in verse one. Here's what Jesus says. He says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. When Jesus says that he's the true vine, any good Jew of that day, especially Jewish leader, would have understood immediately that Jesus is making a reference back to the Old Testament, specifically to Isaiah chapter five. So if you want to, maybe put your thumb in John 15 and flip back to Isaiah Somewhere right around the middle of your Bible, if you're not familiar with the scriptures. But in Isaiah chapter 5, starting in verse 1, Isaiah says this. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. It was well understood that when God used this imagery of Israel, his people, he, he used this term vineyard for his people. 
Let's keep reading about this vineyard of the Lord. So he's, he's singing a love song to God uh, concerning his people. He says, my beloved, the Lord, in other words, he has a vineyard and it's on a very fertile hill. It was planted, in other words, in a pleasant place, a place where it would be able to grow. In fact, Israel was planted where? In the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Look at verse two. He, he dug it out. He dug it and he cleared it of stones. He planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it, and he hewed out a wine vat in it. In other words, Isaiah is saying that God did a lot of work to, to ensure the success of this vineyard and of the vines that he planted. He tilled the soil. He removed the rocks, he, all the obstacles. He, he picked good plants. He watched over it from in the midst. And he also hewed out a wine vat. In other words, he dug out a vat for wine. What does that tell you he was expecting of this vineyard? He was expecting it to produce fruit so that he could have wine, right? He was preparing for that. He was ready for that. There's going to be fruit here, right? I'm I'm digging out the vat and we're going to have wine because there's going to be fruit. See, look at the end of verse two, Isaiah chapter five. He looked for it to yield grapes, but look what happens instead. It yielded wild grapes. The only fruit was fruit that was no good. And now, verse 3, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. In other words, God's saying, was was it the vineyard's fault or was it my fault? Did I not do enough good things to ensure it to grow and, and be healthy and produce fruit? No, God did everything he needed to do, right? Clearly, it's the it's Israel's fault. It's the vineyard's fault. What more was there, God says, to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? Verse 4. When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? God is implying that they had been disobedient. And now, verse 5, I'll tell you what I'll do with my vineyard. I'll remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I'll break down its wall and it will be trampled down. God's going to let the vineyard be disciplined for its disobedience. He's going to, this is a this is ultimately then a prophecy by Isaiah of the fact that, that Israel and Judah would be uh, disciplined by God and taken into exile because of their sin. Because they had rebelled against God and yielded wild grapes, God was going to discipline them like a good father would. He goes, I'll make it a waste in verse 6. It shall not be pruned or hoed and briars and thorns shall grow up. I'll also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts, and here's how we know he's talking about Israel, is, is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are as pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, there was bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. So the Jewish people in Jesus' day, go back to to John chapter 15. When Jesus says, I am the vine. I'm not just the vine, I'm the true vine. They, they're immediately, their thoughts went to this passage. Thinking, hold on, wait, you're the vine? Um, But we're the vineyard. Like God planted us, his people. The vineyard is the house of Israel, Isaiah 5, 7 said. So what do you mean? And Jesus goes, well, yeah, but I'm the true vine. I'm the real one. You guys were disobedient. You, you've turned away. I am the true vine. What Jesus is saying, he, he's saying, uh, your faith is empty. It's yielded no good fruit, only wild grapes. And then he says, by the way, my father is the vine dresser. So then right after that, he really probably gets some worked up because he says, uh, um, it's a claim to deity. Because who is the vine dresser? God was. 
And Jesus is saying, oh, that's my dad. I'm the son of God. There's a claim to deity right there. Now with the rest of this passage is a powerful statement then on what it means to spend time with Jesus as he uses this metaphor of the vine and him being the true vine. Let's look at verse two. He says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. What had he just said by being the true vine? He's just saying to any of the Jewish leaders who would have been in the hearing of this, um, and by the way, you're producing no fruit. Every branch that doesn't bear fruit, the false vine, it's taken away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Now, I don't know a lot about vine dressing. Anybody here know anything about vine dressing? I only know what I read in commentaries and on the internet. And from, from what I can understand, though, a vine dresser is responsible for two things in their vineyard. And they're, they're reflected right here. The first is to cut off dead branches and to prune healthy ones so that they can produce more fruit. To, to cut off all the little sucker shoots and different things like that, or any that are diseased or whatever else, so that the healthiest of all the vines produce the most fruit. That's, that's the idea. That's what the vine dresser does. Get rid of the dead, prune the fruitful for more fruit. And it's exactly what the father does. Look at verse two. He says, every branch in me, Jesus says, that does not bear fruit, he, the father, the vine dresser, takes away. He gets rid of the dead. He, he cuts off the fruitless branches. Now, before we get going too far into this, because this can be a really confusing passage, and I'm going to try to clear it up for you today of what exactly he's talking about. Let me just say this and plant this, uh, this truth in your mind. There is no such thing as a no-fruit Christian. Let me say that again. There is no such thing as a no-fruit Christian. There's fruity Christians, but there's no such thing as a no-fruit Christian. Agreed? All right, so just keep that thought in mind. There cannot be a fruitless Christian. It's not possible. So I kind of gave my position away there. When, Jesus is, when the Father is cutting off these no-fruit branches, he's cutting off those who aren't truly believers in Jesus Christ. And I'll explain why I think that's clear when you look at the rest of Scripture. They may have attached themselves to Jesus and pretended to be part of the true vine, but um, they're not. And so what does he do with them? Well, if you skip down to verse 6, it says they're thrown away like a branch and wither. And then the branches are gathered and they're thrown into the fire and burned. In other words, they're cast out. And they're ultimately, spiritually, those who are not part of the true vine... And this sounds harsh, but it's true. So if this is you, it would be a warning to you to repent and turn to Jesus who would gladly take you, gladly. But that those who don't will spend eternity uh, under God's wrath for their sin in hell. They're cast out, thrown into the fire and burned. But then look at the second half of verse two. Go back. It says, every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. He prunes the fruitful ones for more fruit. This is referring to followers of Jesus. He prunes us to bring forth more fruit. Because there's no such thing as a no-fruit Christian. If you're a Christian, you've got fruit. Now, there's different, you know, there's, there's, there's Christians with a little fruit. But still, at the end of the day, it's like, hey, look, fruit. You're bearing fruit. There's some with some fruit. There's some with a lot of fruit. In fact, you could make the argument that, that sadly, many Christians... 
most oftentimes are kind of in this little fruit category. And we're going to talk about these two branches for a minute as it relates to abiding, because if, if you're one of the branches that has no fruit, you need to repent and trust Jesus. If you're, a, if you're a branch that has fruit, you need to get ready because you're about to be pruned or you're in the process of being pruned so that you would bear more fruit. So it's a little bit of a tough message for everybody today. So let's look at these two, two branches. First, he cuts off the no fruit branches. Again, these are non-Christians, right? I'm gonna go back through. And so let me try to build a case here for why I believe Jesus is talking here about people who are not followers of him. Some have made the argument that they look at this and they go, uh, Jesus says, all the branches who are in me, you know, who don't produce fruit, he casts out. Uh, some have made an argument based on this verse that somehow a person could lose their salvation because of this. That if, if you trust Jesus, but you don't produce enough fruit, that you're cut down, cast out, and burned. Now, there's a pro- uh, here's, here's my problem with that. Um, one, uh, I'll show you some examples elsewhere in Scripture. But the other one is, if that's true... Um, who does my salvation become dependent on or my, my full salvation in the end become dependent on, Jesus or me? Me, because it's like if I don't produce enough fruit, I'm not good enough, see ya, get the ax. It's not grace anymore, it's works. So I don't think, that just doesn't line up with the rest of scripture, but let's keep going here, I'll try to explain the rest. Again, I told you there's no such thing as no fruit Christians. Let me, let's see if we can see why. In Ephesians chapter two, verse 10, it says that we are his workmanship. Those of you, if you've trusted Jesus, you're his masterpiece, his workmanship. You're created in Christ Jesus for what? Do you remember? For good works. You were saved for good works. It doesn't say you were created in Christ Jesus because of your good works, but for good works, that you get saved and then you go live it out. You're made new and you bear fruit. There's no such thing as a no fruit Christian. So, uh, before getting saved, God created you. He created you for good works. It says in other places too, Titus 2 verse 14, uh, he, he, he would purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. James chapter two says that faith without works is what? Dead. A branch without fruit is what? Dead. Uh, worthless. And in fact, he goes on, James says in verse 26 of chapter two, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so faith apart from works is dead. Friends, you cannot be a true Christian and have zero fruit. It's impossible, not possible. Turn to your neighbor, say, there's no such thing as a no fruit Christian. Now turn to your other neighbor, say, you can be fruity, but you've got to bear fruit. <laughs> All right, let's keep going. You've got your Bible? This is, this is an intense message this morning, so we're going to be jumping around, and I don't have as much on the screen, so I'm trying to keep you with me. Turn to Matthew chapter 7 with me. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 7, he's continually telling his followers to beware of something. He's telling them to beware of false prophets, of people who, would, who are false in what they teach, false in who they claim to be. He, he, a false one is somebody, they teach something contrary to scripture. They claim something they don't have. They claim to be Christians when they're not. They claim to teach God's word, but they're not. They're like the big bad wolf, right? They're dressed up in sheep's clothing, but underneath the clothing is a vicious wolf, a mad wolf. So how do you see through the disguise? How can you tell who are the true ones and who are the false ones? Jesus gives us some examples. Uh, 
a way to tell in Matthew chapter 7. Look at verse 16. He says, you will recognize them by their what? Fruit. You'll recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Keep reading, verse 17. So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. Look at verse 18. A healthy tree cannot... Oh, wait, what did we say? There's no such thing as a what? A no-fruit Christian. And really, we should say in, in this metaphor that changes slightly in Matthew 7, there's no such thing as a no-good fruit Christian. A healthy tree cannot, these are Jesus' words, not Josh's, bear bad fruit. Nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Cannot because there's no such thing as a no-fruit Christian. Verse 19, every tree that does not bear good fruit, what happens to it in verse 19? It's cut down and what? Thrown into the fire. Does that sound familiar? What did we just read in John chapter 15? What happens to the branches with no fruit? Cut down and what? Burned, thrown into the fire. So Jesus is using the same metaphor. Now, who are the people Jesus is talking about here in Matthew chapter 7 that are cut down and thrown into the fire? False prophets. People who weren't true Christians to begin with, who weren't true teachers to begin with. They're false. They're fake. They're not really followers of Jesus. He says that the proof's in the fruit. Kind of like the saying, you know, the proof's in the pudding. Or like the old ladies in those old Wendy's commercials, where's the beef? Where's the fruit? That's where the proof is. That's how you can tell. Thus you will recognize them, Jesus says in verse 20 of Matthew 7, by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter. This is an incredibly frightening verse. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many... Friends, I'm afraid that um, I'd be failing as a pastor if I didn't just say, hey, I hope this isn't you, and that there could be people Jesus is talking about like in this room that would say to him on that day, Lord, Lord, I did all these things in your name and I cast out demons in your name. I did many mighty works in your name and then I will declare to them, Jesus says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So how do you know if he knows you? Where's the proof? The fruit. The proof's in the fruit. Down in verse 33, he says either you make the tree good and its fruit good. In other words, Jesus changes you and your fruit becomes good. Or you make the tree bad and its fruit bad for the tree is known by its fruit. Now turn back a little further to Matthew chapter 3. See what John the baptizer says about some of these things. John uh, is combating false teachers as well. And uh, he's he's standing, he's uh, preaching and preaching. Some of the religious leaders who uh, Jesus says are part of the false vine now, uh, John calls them snakes and a brood of vipers in verse 7. And then in verse 8, he tells them, why don't you guys quit being fake? Why don't you guys bear fruit in keeping with repentance? Why don't you repent and bear real fruit? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Bear real fruit, guys. Quit faking it. Repent. Turn to Jesus, John says. And then in verse 9, he says, and don't presume to say to yourselves, well, we have Abraham as our father. 
right? If, you, if you, this was in John 15, it'd be, oh, well, we're the vineyard. You know, Jesus planted us. We're uh, my dad and my dad's dad and my dad's 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 dad. Oh, I have a long line of dad's dads that we're part of the true vineyard. And we're, we have Abraham even as our father. Jesus says, don't presume. John says, don't presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God's able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. He's talking to those who, who are not truly repenting, who are not turning truly to Jesus. Look at verse 10. He says, even now, the ax is laid to the root of the trees and every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit, what happens to it? Cut down and what? Thrown into the fire. Who's John talking about this time? Jesus in Matthew 7, we said, was talking about unbelievers. Who's John talking about? Unbelievers. Those who haven't repented and trusted Jesus. Now, if John uses this analogy for unbelievers... Of, of being cut down and thrown into the fire. And if Jesus uses it twice of unbelievers being cut down and thrown into the fire, why would suddenly Jesus totally change course in John 15 and use this metaphor for believers who somehow lose their salvation and are thrown into the fire? I don't think that's what's going on in John 15. I think there's no such thing as a no-fruit Christian. And so when Jesus is saying, you know, in me in John chapter 15, verse 2, He's not using it in the way that Paul would use it decades later. He's using it in terms of just, you know, the branches that are just kind of clumped up in here, they're not connected to the vine, they're cut off, they need to be thrown out and burned. Jesus says, I mean, think about it. He's using the same analogy in John 15. Would you agree? These were not believers who lost their salvation and turned away. They, They were never truly saved. Because Jesus says, whoever would come to me, I will surely, how often cast out? Never. I will surely never cast out. If you would turn to Jesus Christ and trust him, friends, he receives you with open arms and he would never cast you out. Never. You didn't do anything to earn your salvation, so how could you possibly do anything to lose it? Now, I don't want to give you false hope either because you're like, well, yeah, because, okay, good. I prayed that prayer when I was five. Okay, then here's the next question. Where is the fruit? Because if you really prayed that prayer, you really trusted Jesus Christ, guess what there's going to be in your life? Fruit. It might be small, it might be bountiful, but there is no such thing as a no-fruit Christian. Now let's keep going and look at this other branch. The unfruitful branches with no fruit, he he burns. The ones that are fruitful, though, who have trusted Jesus, he prunes the fruitful branches. Why? For more fruit. For more fruit. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. The end of verse two, chapter 15 of John, that it may bear more fruit. The second branches are the fruitful ones, the true believers. You might have a little, you might have a lot, but get ready. He's got the pruning shears in his hand and he wants more. Not because he's greedy, but because he loves you. He's zealous for his glory, for sure but he loves you and he wants you to experience joy. 
The idea of pruning is to cut off the little sucker shoots that rob the main branch of all the energy to produce fruit, right? Do you have any, you ever prune a rose bush at your house? Anybody have rose bushes? Some of you are like master gardeners, right? So you can talk about this a lot better than I can. What do you do with a rose bush to prune it? Like, you, first you pull out all the dead stuff, correct? And then you, you start to cut away even some of the good stuff. Because some of these little sucker shoots start taking off. And what are they doing? They're robbing the most fruitful uh, branches of that rose bush of being able to produce the most beautiful roses. And so what do you do? You prune them. And you cut them off. And sometimes you can prune a bush down so far that you just think, it looks like it's just basically somebody, you know, some little kid stuck a stick in the mud. But you wait long enough, all the energy now goes up into that one stem And it's a gorgeous, gorgeous blossom of roses. It's the same thing. See, what are the sucker shoots then for us? If if you're a true branch as part of the true vine, what are some of the sucker shoots? Well, sometimes it's sin. Oftentimes it's sin. And Jesus needs to prune. The Father prunes those things out of our lives. Sometimes it's a good thing that he prunes away. But you need to know the Father's concerned with the removal of whatever it is that would hinder you from producing more fruit. So pruning, if it sounds painful, then you're correct. (laughs) Because it's often incredibly painful. And God can use a lot of different things to prune us. Sometimes it's sickness, loss of a loved one. I just wrote a few down there. Uh, Material woes, financial woes, relational woes, discouragement persecution. Now it's funny, sometimes uh, we equate all those things, uh, no matter what they are with Satan, right? And we'll go, oh, Satan's just having a heyday. Sometimes he is. But sometimes it's just God pruning you. And he's allowing these things so that you would bear more fruit. So sometimes that, I'll be honest, sometimes that just drives me crazy because I think we give Satan way more credit than he deserves. And man, he loses in the end. And when we do that, you know, don't be like the church lady on SNL, right? Like looking for, hmm, could it be Satan? You know, looking under every little rock for him. Uh, Because when you do that, you rob yourself of the fact that maybe God's just allowing this because he wants you to grow. Maybe that really incredible, hard, painful thing is for your good somehow. Now, maybe Satan has a part in it. But God, I think, has a bigger purpose for it. And if he's pruning you, embrace it. Embrace it. And the only way, friends, the only way this happens is when you abide in Jesus Christ. You have to remain. You have to stay. You can't run. You've got to abide. Because here's what happens. Look at verse three. Already, Jesus says, you are clean to his disciples because of the word that I've spoken to you. It's because of the word. Jesus declares us righteous. His word is what does the healing. And so when you're pruned and when you're cut and when you're hurt, it's a wound. But what is it that does the healing and cleans out the wound? It's the word of God. And if you're not abiding if you're not staying close to the vine and remaining in him and staying in him, you're just running away wounded. And if you don't embrace the trial, 
Loved ones, if you don't embrace it and let God do his work in your heart and in your life, you know what you become? You become a poison to the rest of the vineyard. You become bitter. And then you use that as an excuse. Well, you don't know what's happened to me. You don't understand all the past. You're right, I don't. But God does. And his word can heal if you let him. You've got to abide. You've got to remain. You've got to stay. Yeah, it's painful. And quite frankly, it sucks. But you've got to stay. Following Jesus isn't easy. You can expect suffering. He said, take up your cross and follow me. But here's, the, here's number three. If we abide, you know what we'll do? You'll bear fruit. If you abide and you're connected to the vine after the pruning, you'll bear more fruit, better fruit. If you abide, you've got to sit down in it. You've got to remain. You'll become more like Jesus the more time you spend with him. It's, it's fair to go to him and say, this doesn't make any sense. I don't like this. This hurts. It's painful. Why did, why? It's okay. But don't run. Abide. Abide with him. See, uh, there's, a, there's an aspect of, a, of abiding and of following Jesus that's very personal. Would you agree? But the other part of it I want you to see here is that it's not private. Abiding and following Jesus is very personal, it is, but it's not private. Other people are gonna see the fruit or lack thereof in your life. Speaking to those of you who follow Jesus, right? It's, it's, it's personal, but it's not private. See, Jesus says in verse four, abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself. How many of you have ever uh, cut a branch off of a tree? Right? What happens to it after you cut it down? Yeah. It falls, it withers, it dies. Why? It's not connected anymore. Jesus is like, you've got to abide if you want to bear fruit. I'm the vine. You're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, how much can you do? Nothing. He says, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. Friends, following Jesus is about abiding in him. Now quickly as we close, let me give you three benefits to abiding. The first one is fruit. You're like, what? You kind of hit that one already, Josh. I know. The first one, the first benefit of abiding is fruit. It's fruit. Wouldn't it be terrible to go your whole life and have no fruit? I wonder how people might feel or must feel at the end of their life when they're about to die and they realize they haven't contributed anything to anything. There's no fruit. But here, if you abide in the vine, there's fruit. There's fruit. You know, 24 of the 27 New Testament books talk about the Christian bearing fruit. There's no such thing as a no-fruit Christian. If you abide, you'll bear fruit. You want to bear fruit? You're like, I want that to be me? Stay close to Jesus. 
Stay close to him. By this, my father's glorified, Jesus says in verse eight, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. Now there's two types of fruit. Two types of fruit I wanna commend to you, right? There's action fruit. What would action fruit be? Well, action fruit would be doing good things. These are things you can have control over. Helping old ladies cross the street. Picking up after yourself. Giving to somebody financially. These are, these are action fruits, right? We can do these, but there's a greater fruit that drives action fruit. Do you know what it is? Attitude fruit. The fruit of the Spirit. See, it's going to require you uh, depending on Jesus and depending on his Spirit. Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit is love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. Attitude fruit. See, some of you are like, oh, but I got fruit because you should see this whole long list of good deeds I do. Okay, but everybody else is standing over here going, okay, you do some good things, but your attitude, man. Are you sure those are fruit? Or are they just things you did? See, action fruit without attitude fruit is legalism. It's look at all these good things I've done and look at how good I am and don't you go questioning me. But attitude fruit, and it does nothing with your attitude. It makes it rotten. Nobody wants to be around you. Attitude fruit, though, you start to develop the fruit of the Spirit and all those action fruits just kind of happen. When you have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness... Those good deeds just naturally flow out of who you are. And it's so clearly the fruit of someone following Jesus Christ and not someone just trying to hang fruit on their dead branch. First benefit of abiding is real fruit. The second one, answered prayer. Look at verse seven. If you abide in me, my words in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Need Jesus to answer some prayer? Abide in him. Stay with him. Third, I would commend another, another um, benefit of abiding is obedience. So when you get down to verse 10, Jesus says, if you keep my commands, keep my commandments, then you'll abide in my love. Just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. Again, that's the action fruit flowing out of the attitude fruit. Do you want to obey? I hope you do. But if you just focus more on abiding and being with Jesus and studying his word and becoming like him and repenting and turning to him, that obedience just comes because you love him. And it's not nearly as much work. It's just, that's who I am. That's what I do. So we're sent to love people. And invite them to follow Jesus with us. And the question of the day is, are you really following Jesus? And the way to figure that out is, are you bearing fruit? If you're not bearing fruit, you're, you're looking at your life this morning, you're going, you know what? There's no fruit in my life. I don't know if I even know Jesus. I've just been playing a game. And it's, listen, whoever would come to him, he promises to save. If you'd simply turn from your 
self and your sin and turn to Jesus Christ in repentance. That's what repentance means. It means to turn, to change your mind. If you would simply turn to Jesus Christ in faith, you will be saved. Whoever believes that Jesus Christ is Lord and that the Father raised him from the dead and confesses with his mouth, believes in his heart, he will be saved. You'll begin to produce fruit and more and more fruit as you abide. If you have trusted him and you're like, I've got fruit, but Josh, you know what? It's like this big and it was 10 years ago. (laughs) The issue, you need to start abiding again. What have you been running from? Abide. Let me pray. We're going to sing. We'll call it a morning. Father, thanks for Jesus. Thanks for your grace to us. Um, Lord, this is a, it's a difficult passage to read that, and I think rightly a frightening one to, to consider that if there's no fruit in my life, um, at the end I'd be gathered up and punished for my sin. I'd be under your wrath and cast into the fire. And it's frightening too then to examine our lives and wonder about the fruit in our own lives. Is it, is it real fruit? Is it fruit that's, that's come about because of your spirit working in our lives or is it just us trying to somehow earn favor with you and with people? It's a good thing to think about and consider and examine our hearts over. So Lord, I pray for those if they find themselves to be with no fruit that they might repent even today and trust you and that they would find you warmly waiting and excitedly welcoming them into your family. For those who who have trusted you and whether they have little fruit or much fruit, Jesus, might this be a reminder for us that if we're gonna love people and invite them to follow with us, then we need to be following And it begins, and it consists, I believe, even primarily of simply abiding with you. We love you. We thank you for Jesus. We pray all this in his name. Amen.